Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Once again, this is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. Well, it's that time of the season again, and the season I'm referring to isn't uh, winter, the holiday season, but I mean our season here on the show. Uh, It's sort of a tradition of ours to, at least once every season, to invite a composer, a video game composer that we really like and respect, onto our show and sort of chat with them and take an in-depth look on their music. And we're really excited today to get to look at the music of the composer Gary Scheiman. It's going to be a great time. Now, typically, we save these up for every 25 episodes, Uh, so we had one on 175, and you probably are expecting it to be on episode 200, but we have something else planned for episode 200, because it's going to be kind of a special milestone um, for our show in general. So, we're going to do this episode a little bit early. This is episode 194, and yeah, like Will said, we can't wait to talk about Gary's music, and also get to sit down and talk with Gary later on, so that's going to be such a treat. What you guys are hearing right now, I'm sure a lot of you recognize this, this is music from the original Bioshock game. This is Welcome to Rapture, and that game uh, came out in 2007. It already seems like quite a long time ago. It came out for the PC, the 360, and the PS3. And I will say that the Bioshock series is definitely what Gary is most known for, especially for people listening to this podcast about video game music. Um, so it's so awesome that we already have these so many great entries um, from the series from Gary, and I can only assume in the future. So yeah, we're going to play a few tracks up top to kind of introduce if there's anybody who's not familiar with the work of Gary and then we'll sit down and talk with him and then after that we'll play a few more tracks to kind of wrap things up so let's start off talking about a track uh, from the original Bioshock as well this is Dancers on a String let's take a listen beautiful piece is Dancers on a String from Bioshock, composed by Gary Scheiman. What a great way to introduce this episode, talking about Gary's music. If there's anyone who's not familiar, I really feel like this is a really nice example. Um, Obviously, it makes sense to start with Bioshock uh, as far as our playlist today, Um, but the whole series is so diverse musically. You know, you have some of the creepiest moments that I've ever heard in a video game and some of the most tragically beautiful moments as well. So it's just, I don't know, such deeply emotional music. Well, Gary is a film composer, and he has his background in film scoring and composition. And, I mean, you can really hear those chops at play in the original Bioshock. One of my favorite things about not only this soundtrack, but this whole game, is it carries with it this sort of air of sophistication Mm -hmm. um, that I really don't think, especially at this time, was really so common with video games. I mean, the context of the story and the background of the world, it it pulls influence from from philosophy and history and it's just a very clever and creative world and what I love about um, Gary's choices for scoring this I mean obviously using orchestra or using real instruments is nothing necessarily new for video games Gary's specific approach to orchestration uh, it it feels much more classically symphonic in in a piece like this you know it's much more intimate and the focus is more on smaller solo instrument sections I mean Mm -hmm. both uh, 
this piece and Welcome to Rapture, the track we played in with, feature that solo violin. And here we also have that um, beautiful piano part. And it, it starts to sound a little bit more like chamber music, like something that maybe we'd hear in a concert hall. And definitely much less. I mean, when I think of orchestra music for a video game, I tend to think of something that's a little bit more, you know, percussion based or drum loops, big kind of brass sounds, action music. I don't really think of this really evocative emotional music. And that's really what Gary Scheinman brings to the table that I think is so unique. I think you're absolutely right about that. And we're going to we're going to obviously move on in the series as we go. And we'll talk about this also in the interview. But uh, Gary didn't start his video game music career with the Bioshock. It was kind of uh, the big break as far as what really put him on the map. But he did do some work uh, on on titles before this game. So we're going to now move on to the second soundtrack in the series. This is Bioshock 2. And it came out a few years later. This came out in 2010 for the same systems. And we're going to take a listen to the main theme of this game. This is the Bioshock 2 theme. It's called Pair Bond, once again by Gary Scheinman. Let's take a listen to this. This music really stops me in my tracks. You guys are listening to Pair Bond, which is the Bioshock 2 theme from Bioshock 2, composed by Gary Scheiman. Oh my gosh, yeah. It, it's crazy to think of how far we've come uh, in video game music, thinking about the origins, you know, things like the, the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo, um, to imagine that this is possible and that not only is it possible, like it's not like this is uh, just something that you would hear in the beginning of the game and then the rest of it is, is, is different. This kind of music is able to fit an interactive experience now. It's just so impressive that we've got to that point. Well, I think it's important to mention also uh, that it really is... Uh, a new thing to have this in games. It is relatively unprecedented, not just to have recorded music and recorded orchestras, but really to have an experience, to have an interactive experience that warrants this subtle use of score. I mean, I really enjoy the soundtrack to these games because they are traditionally symphonic in the tradition of great film music. And I happen to be a huge fan of film music. Um, But the thing that I also think is important is to me, it actually ties in well to the tradition of video game music because it really, it, it tends to be more about a sort of simple emotional focus, which is when I think of old school video game music, obviously the emotions they're trying to convey are very different, but the music is is very simple on a level that it's melodic and you can kind of connect with it. And that's something I really like about Gary's music is it's sort of tied into the film music tradition of classic composers like John Williams and Bernard Herrmann. Not to say that there isn't, uh, you know, wildly different styles that that Gary uses in these soundtracks. You know, there's moments that are just incredibly creepy Mm -hmm. and just get under your skin. Uh, So it's not all this type of an emotion. You know, what we've heard so far is just this really kind of beautiful, tragic quality. And that's something that Gary does so well. But he's able to capture a lot of different emotions with his music. Well, I'd say my favorite thing about uh, the music for the Bioshock series is that it's really so subtle. 
Um, I mean, I, th- I think there's a lot of video game music that can be creepy. There's a lot of video game music that's melodic or action oriented. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I think it's different now when you have film and television composers working on video games. Right. Um, but for the most part, it, that's something that uh, I tend not to see as much and something that I'm just so appreciative of these scores. You know, even, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, even when there are those real moments of dissonance, they come from a logical kind of classical setting. They sound more like uh, 20th century music. It, it doesn't really just feel um, too on the nose, so to speak. Sure, yeah. And I'm sure anyone who's familiar with the games is very familiar with with those moments. So we're going to move on to the next game in the series. And, and we will, after the interview especially, we're going to be able to feature um, some titles from other other series that he's worked on but we're going to stick with bioshock uh and play one more track before we talk with gary this is from bioshock infinite and this came out just a few years ago this was i think 2013 this came out and what's cool is that all three of these titles came out for you know the same generation of consoles which is pretty awesome that you're able to get three quality entries uh in one generation anytime that happens i think it's pretty impressive they're really able to work efficiently to get these games released in this generation. So let's take a listen to a beautiful piece called Elizabeth from Bioshock Infinite. so gorgeous you guys are listening to elizabeth from bioshock infinite composed by gary shyman now this game and soundtrack definitely represented a little bit of a departure uh, in some ways from the previous entries um i know that gary's mentioned before that this soundtrack feels a little bit more american um has some more frontier elements to it and we without giving it away we'll talk about this when we when we talk with gary but um as far as the approach of the soundtrack and the instrumentation there was also some kind of changes that were made for the soundtrack too but as far as just talking about this track will what are some things that jumped out to you about this track elizabeth well i think a lot of the harmonies in the lower register here a lot of that harmonic material is being covered by the cello either in arpeggiation or in double stops Uh, a Mm -hmm. lot of times you just get these pure sort of open fifth sonorities um, that really kind of they have this wonderful rugged simplicity to it that mixed with sort of the timbre of the cello um, I think this track in particular you don't necessarily get as much of the Americana sound but I think it's important to mm-hmm. mention that that's super important to Bioshock Infinite because I think something that makes this series unique is that it's not so much an entire musical world because the game's are almost take place in different feeling universes. You know, Bioshock Infinite takes place in an entirely different location and has different characters than the original uh, sure. Bioshock, to the original two Bioshock games, in fact. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the unique challenges um, for a composer like Gary Scheiman because it's it's not like, say, like Star Wars, you know, where it's like, oh, it's this one world. And, you know, exactly. you know that when you watch a Star Wars movie, you need to hear a certain type of thing from the music. Um, but with Bioshock, it... 
it, it, it's it's really different you know it's like the similarity i think has to do more with the mechanics in the type of gameplay but really the mm -hmm. world and the emotional context is very different in each um iteration which i think as a listener is very interesting to see where he goes musically but there's still a lot of common thread and that that's what's able to make it work so well as a series well we gave you guys a little bit of a context for anyone who's not familiar with his music but now i think it makes sense to actually sit down and talk with gary Well, we're excited today to be joined by acclaimed video game composer Gary Scheiman. Gary, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's kind of interesting. Recently, Carl and myself were asked to host a panel at Gamers Rhapsody, which is a convention uh, in the Twin Cities on video game music. And we did a topic called the history of video game music. And uh, we sort of needed to select different tunes, um, you know, from the 80s really to the present day to sort of uh, select a broad variety of different pieces from the history of video game music. And um, I think it's kind of fitting because one of the pieces that we played was Welcome to Rapture from Bioshock. So, cool. Gary, you're obviously an acclaimed film and television composer, but you're also a legendary video game composer. For those of you who might not know your background, can you take us through how and when you got into composing music and what some of your early work was? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I studied music composition at USC uh, here in, in L.A., with the, the, the conscious decision that I didn't want to teach and pretty much, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to make a living as a concert composer. So, but my goal really was from the start to become a film and television composer. This is in the eighties. So they're, they're really the option of games was, was really not on the table at that point. Right. Um, so when I graduated, I, you know, like anyone was a, a young composer eager to find opportunities um, through a friend of mine, his father was a TV star, <laughs> and <laughs> Dennis Weaver, I don't know if you know that name, but uh, at the time he was a big star, and he was uh, starring in a television show, and, and the composers for that series were Mike Post and Pete Carpenter, Okay, and, um, and so they were, and they were doing a lot of shows, so I just got sort of permission to go and attend the sessions, and in those days, pretty much everything was live uh, sessions uh, oh yeah so these were orchestral sessions at universal's um recording studio the, on the universal lot doesn't exist anymore that studio unfortunately but hmm. uh, we've got a lot of big studios closed over the years but in any event um i went and um they had so many shows going including like the a team and magnum pi and oh yeah hero all these are really uh, pretty iconic shows from the 80s they had ghost composers that would help them. And eventually, uh, Pete Carpenter um, asked me if I'd be interested in writing some cues. And I said, yeah, hell yeah. And um, and so I got that opportunity that lasted for a number of years, which was really awesome, really. That's so great. I mean, unfortunately, it goes uncredited, but at the same time, it, it's it's kind of a no-risk opportunity because you get you get the experience, and then if you really mess up, your name isn't on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they blame Mike and Pete. Um, it, it was, <laughs> I mean, you didn't last long if you didn't write good music. Sure. Uh, and so that that wasn't a serious issue. Um, but in any event, that so that was how I got started. Eventually, um, striking out on my own, um, doing a lot of TV, a lot of low and medium budget movies. Never, I've never scored like a big, giant, you know, major film, unfortunately. Right. But I uh, did a lot of TV movies in the 90s. Um, did score a video game in 94, um, which is interesting. Um, yeah, I believe Voyeur, right? Yes, Voyeur and Voyeur 2. Don't forget about that. <laughs> Nobody can forget about well, that. Well, I right? noticed that you kind of, yeah, you, you had these forays into video games in the 90s, and then for a period of almost like a decade, you weren't really involved in video game music. Was there sort of a conscious choice on your part to um, you move back to films and television, and what brought you back to video games? Okay, the only reason that video game opportunity in the 90s existed was because the same friend whose father was Dennis Weaver, Rob, Robbie Weaver, was working for Philips Interactive. And so he knew my work. He actually was good, a good buddy and actually was also a recording engineer and he had recorded a lot of my scores. So he oh. invited me to record, to do the music to 
uh, a couple of their games. Philips Interactive eventually was a hardware and software that they produced it all. Uh, it, it was a short-lived experiment in video game hardware. Uh, sure. Being a big um, uh, Dutch electronics company. And, uh, and so it was just, it was just um, someone asked me, my friend Robbie asked me to do it, and I was happy to do it. Uh, my, the first score I did with them was orchestral, and if it wasn't the first, it was one of the very first orchestral scores for a video game. And it was only possible because the Philips technology was, everything was put on CDs. Yeah, one of the early examples of that for sure. Exactly. So they were using compressed audio. And that permitted me to record live instruments because most of the video game music at that time was a MIDI triggering, a very sort of basic oh, yeah. uh, synth engine. So that was that was not interesting to me. So when Phillips went out of business, when Robbie was no longer asking me to do those games, I just went back to what I knew and where I had experience and opportunity. Sure. So it wasn't a conscious uh, decision. At that time, the video games were not huge. The internet was just coming into being, and it was almost, you know, it wasn't really until I think the Sony PlayStation, yeah, in the late '90s, where all of a sudden you had these very sophisticated games that became possible and started to get developed and became very successful. Well, also I think someone coming from the orchestral world of film and TV, you know, I, you know, once we got to the late '90s, it was a much easier transition to make. I think. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely, because they were looking for cinematic style scores. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't actively seeking that work. I wasn't, I wasn't turning it down. I mean, just no, it wasn't sort of, I just wasn't in that world because the film and TV world is different from the video game developer world. You, it's a whole different set of contacts and uh, relationships. Were you ever a gamer before you started to work in scoring video games or not? To, to be honest, no, I wasn't. I was not a gamer. And, um, I'm embarrassed to say that. <laughs> That's funny that we've now we've reached a point where you're embarrassed to say that, where I'm sure when you started, uh, it would have been the other way around. Exactly, exactly. Um, no, I wasn't really a gamer. Um, however, I was intrigued by it. I was, you know, it, it was getting my attention because of the media. And then when I had the opportunity to do Destroy All Humans, uh, I yeah. was like shocked at how cool it was, you know. So how did that work as far as uh, the opportunity to work on Destroy All Humans? Um, how did you get involved in that project? Okay, that, that was pure luck. <laughs> uh, serendipity, as they say. Um, my agent, I had an agent at that time who was shopping me around and was he was somewhat interested in video games. So he sent my resume over to THQ, which was the publisher. And it was on, it, it, back in 2004, which is when he sent it over, you still sent resumes over on fax machines. So it was sitting <laughs> on the fax machine and one of the executives was looking at the fax machine and said, I know him. And it was like, literally, it was my girlfriend's roommate from college. No I had, way. I swear to God, Rachel uh, DiPiola, who, by the way, is now a huge um, executive over at Take Two. That's crazy. Yeah, she, she just like, and I've been really good friends with her, but I'd really kind of lost touch with her. But she was like so excited to see my name and you know, she knew I was a composer that it got the attention of the people choosing composers there. And they, they, it all really ultimately did was triggered a series of events. They asked for us to hear some of my music. We sent some mm -hmm. over. There was one cue on there that had this Bernard Herman. And for those who are not familiar, Bernard Herman. Oh, yeah. The, great film composers. And yeah, also, Will's a huge Bernard Herrmann fan. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, so you know who Bernard Herrmann is. Those who don't, uh, who are listening, you need to Google Bernard Herrmann, B-E-R-N-A-R-D-H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N, -N, two N's. Um, so he's one of the greats. I love Bernard Herrmann, but they, they heard one cue on there that had that vibe, and they said, do you have any more of this? <laughs> and I said, well, I scored a game called Voyeur, that had a lot of that because Voyeur had, they had wanted a Bernard Herman score. So I have, not only did I have a bunch of it, but it was orchestrally recorded. And it was for a game. That's great. And it was for a game. So I sent that over and they go, wow, this is terrific. Would you want to do a pitch? And I didn't know what a pitch was uh, other than in terms of baseball. Um, so, <laughs> I, but then they said, okay, it's, it's a basically, it's a demo to get the gig, a free demo. And I said, no. Um, hmm. 
and which is, you know, everyone will tell you you should say yes to everything. But I said no, which turned out to be the right decision. But my, my feeling was I just sent you over this Bernard Herman. And by the way, the reason they wanted Bernard Herman was because the game Destroy All Humans was set in the 50s in a sort of this ah, tongue in cheek humor exactly. game. And aliens are coming to Earth. So they decided, like, the day the Earth stood still was like, the, sure. the Model 5, they wanted the score to sound like it was composed in the 50s, you know, or had that 50s vibe to it, um, sci-fi. So I just figured, hey, I sent them over stuff that's so in the pocket. If I do a demo, it'll be a reason not to hire me. Mm, so I just said, I said no, because I was, I didn't, I wasn't going to hire an or orchestra for the demo. Exactly. And. And, and then I didn't hear anything for two months. I assumed I wasn't, you know, no longer was an option. I just forgot about it. And then all of a sudden my agent got a call one day and they said, we want to hire Gary. So that was it. That's the story. I mean, and then. So that worked out really well for you, playing hardball. Really well. And um, uh, I enjoyed, I worked with uh, Emily Ridgway, who was the audio director. She went on to become the audio director for Bioshock. So that's how it all, I got involved in the Bioshock series well, so that's it was raw, that's really it was wonderful because my girlfriend's roommate was working at thq that's so that wonderful I, I love that story I, i'm curious because you mentioned uh, bernard herman quite a few times and how he was an influence on now multiple projects of yours have you had the opportunity to actually look at any of the herman orchestral scores from any of the films he did um back in the day have you had any opportunity to like study those and was that sort of an influence on your work with those projects yeah, when I did the score for Voyeur, that was in the style of Bernard Herrmann, and I didn't have any of his scores. I just I'd listened to a lot of his music, and it was just in my ear. I could write. Sure. I could write in that style. It wasn't something I had to study, and that was pretty much true as well for uh, Destroy All Humans. Um, but I have looked at his scores, yes, and he he was such an interesting composer and such a, a great part of American film music history. And it's cool that we hear his influence um, today a lot in video game music. You know, another composer that comes to mind uh, having that influence is Peter McConnell. I know we've talked to him in the past. So it's cool that, you know, one composer from so long ago can still have an influence in a, in a media that he probably never would have even imagined being a thing. Yeah, no, he would have probably screamed and yelled. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like he was kind of a volatile guy from what I've heard. Oh, he was he was super prickly and difficult uh, individual and in fact, it hurt his career to some extent because of he wasn't an easy guy to get along with. There's a great recording of him somewhere where he's like being interviewed. And clearly it's like some young interviewer and the interviewer is trying to be really nice. And but he's being such an asshole. Excuse my French. <laughs> but he's being just a jerk until he started to talk about Hitchcock. And then all of a sudden he softened. And he and even though Hitchcock fired him, we could talk about I could talk about Herman for a long time. So stop <laughs> me, stop me before I use my entire our entire interview talking about Bernard. But in any event, yeah, I'm a big fan of Bernard Herman. Well, I heard an interesting story uh, from Steven Spielberg that uh, when Scorsese was making Taxi Driver, uh, Steven got the opportunity to meet Bernard Herman and said, oh, Mr. Herman, I, I can't tell you what a big fan I am of yours. And without missing a beat, Bernard Herman just says, well, yeah, well, why don't you hire me? Why do you keep always going to John Williams for your scores? <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Kind of scolded him. <laughs> the, the night he finished recording Taxi Driver, he went back to his hotel. He was living in London at that time, and he recorded that in the U.S. He went back to his hotel, and he died of a heart attack that night. Oh, wow. that's crazy. Sad. He was in his 60s. He wasn't uh, really that old, but, you know. Well, anyways, yeah, I, I know that you weren't involved in selecting the licensed songs that were used in the Bioshock series. So I know that your score wasn't really designed around to complement or contrast to them. But how do you think your music and choices would have been different if you were given that mandate of either matching or not matching the tone of those songs? And are you happy with how uh, that music fits alongside your score? Yes. Yeah, I think Emily chose those and she did I think a really brilliant job choosing those songs I agree even some music by Tchaikovsky um, from uh, the Nutcracker Suite so I didn't really need to reference those because those were sometimes source music meaning they were coming from 
like a record player or something or or whatever and they just mm-hmm. they played up the irony of this world gone mad and so it, it was a, it had served a different purpose to the score and I, I actually was not aware she I can't remember it's been a few years now I can't remember she may have played <laughs> a couple of things I knew she was looking for some music from the Nutcracker Suite the dance of the sugar plum fairy sh- sugar plum fairy yeah. yeah plum fairy yes and so I know she she referenced that to me one time but I never was asked okay this you know Tchaikovsky or this uh, how much is that dogging in the window is going to go right into your queue I never had that so I was really sort of isolated from that that team was working in Boston Irrational Games and I was working in LA and basically okay. just she was sending me music requests maybe taking in game footage you know and sending that to me um and sure i was just writing music based upon those those requests basically a, a list of assets they requested it's crazy how things can work out so well because i know there's a lot of people that just assume that because it fits so well that oh that was so conscious and it was maybe one person in charge of everything uh but sometimes it's just one of those things where it just it just fits really serendipitously well. yeah yeah absolutely yeah well i think you know emily gets credit for that because she was implementing my music and implementing the songs. So she uh, was central to making sure that there was a integrity to the score. Well, so that is something that I am curious about because you know, we've interviewed uh, lots of composers on this show before, but we haven't interviewed a lot of you know contemporary video game uh, composers with sort of the resources of a modern day film composer. Um, since v- video games are not really a static medium and they have to be responsive to what the players are doing, what's the process like for you? Are there visual things that you're looking at to match you know beat by beat what's happening on the screen, or is it kind of a more conceptual thing that they have to fit into the game well i mean there's different types of music that you write for games some of the game music and it it varies from project to project will be as much as 30 40 50 percent you're scoring in game cgi movies Mm -hmm. so those are scored just as you would a film or television show they're locked picture and etc so no no difference at all there however there is the in-game music, and um, there's a variety of techniques. And it's usually something that, you know, uh, it's, it's either decided by or decided with me, with the audio director or wh- whoever is implementing the music, about how do you achieve this? How do we get interactivity? Um, very often, I mean, the, the simplest form of interactive music is the simple loop, where the music just will loop seamlessly and you write it so that it loops seamlessly and then it just mm-hmm. plays till you know it's you go through another door or whatever so that's that's a really simple way of of implementing music and it's still really common today um oh yeah there's layered music where you can have music essentially with different layers and the layers will um be triggered by some in-game event the player achieves something or the enemy shows up in maybe in greater numbers or whatever and and, and it can increase or the intensity of the music can increase or decrease based upon what the player is doing and what's what they're seeing and experiencing. Yeah. So are the are the possibility of player action sort of given to you? Are you allowed to play through the game or is it sort of told these are sort of the sequences of events and then you write music based around, well, if this action happens, then, you know, I'm going to want this melodic line or something to come in. Um, or is it more you write the pieces of the music and then the audio engineer takes the various stems of the track and includes them or what's really that process like it it really is interesting you know in film or tv implementation was a sort of established in the late 20s and even though there's been all this technological change it hasn't changed in 80 years okay (laughs) but in video games it's it's constantly changing so it will really depend on who i'm working with and what their vision for implementation is. And sometimes it's fairly basic and simple, and sometimes it's much more subtle and complex. And, you know, they almost never let me play the game because I'm not in-house. I have to literally go where they are, and usually I'm not in the same city. Sure. So, and they're just afraid to let builds of the game out because if it got out, it would put in jeopardy, you know, a $100 million game or sure. So they, they just don't let anybody who's an outside contractor, and that's what I am. I'm, I'm a contracted composer. I'm not an in-house mm-hmm. um, composer. So they will send me gameplay 
you know, video of what's going on. And then I will, you know, get descriptions of what the issues are and, you know, how long a player is expected to be in this area. Maybe there's a stinger when something jumps out at you. I mean, there are all sorts of possibilities. Um, and it will just vary based upon the needs of the game and the creative decisions that are made by the team. Absolutely. Talking more about, you know, musically, uh, what you establish in Bioshock, I think when you're talking about that score, one of the obvious things to mention as far as how it's unique from other scores is the smaller uh, instrumentation. Now, when you start a project, is the instrumentation one of the first things you settle on, or do the musical ideas come first to you, and then you try to find the best way to convey those ideas? Yeah, I mean, there's various reasons that the if you're using live players and there's a lot of games that just don't require that just just all synths and samples and maybe you know guitar or something but okay let's assume an orchestra score the size of the orchestra will be determined by budget and creative approach so you may actually and like with Bioshock Infinite we, we had the budget to have a huge orchestra if we wanted mm -hmm. that was not an issue they spent a lot of money on that game the the thing was that there was a creative decision and it didn't happen instantaneously. It took a while to sort of like figure it out. It was a decision that the style of the game was really a small, small string ensembles um, with some percussion. I mean, it, it, I could talk at length about how I designed the score and it was in collaboration with, you know, uh, the team there. Um, but it was really uh, a, a realization. Actually, it was it was. Um, there was a point where I realized we, we, we really didn't have our a handle on the score until there was an E3 presentation, like a year before the game came out. And at that presentation, the Elizabeth character had not been fully fleshed out. She was sort of a, a medium to minor importance in the game. And <clears throat> she, her, she was so interesting to the press and the people everyone was intrigued with the elizabeth character all of a sudden they revamped the game with the, with that consideration that she was central to the whole game's design and plot even so they they went through a rethink and at that point i thought well you know what i should write an elizabeth theme that's yeah. very useful so i actually went went and with just a couple of instruments a, a violin and a cello I recorded a theme for Ken, uh, Ken Levine, the uh, creative director. And he really loved it. He really, really, really liked it. And I kept it really simple and Americana, you know, kind of vibe, almost with a little bit of a sense of the fiddle as opposed to, you know, fiddle being sort of a way of playing the violin. Sure. And, um, yeah. and, it, and he just really loved that. And that start, it started to, to dawn on us uh, that that was the approach. The only thing left was uh, decision as far as the size of the group was the combat music. Sure. So uh, at first we said, okay, all these other cues, you know, should be small string ensembles, but combat music, geez, combat's got to be an orchestra. It's not going to have the power or the right. intensity and the drive. Now here you're still talking about infinite here, infinite, right? Yes, infinite. Yeah. Definitely, just infinite. So um, I did a few experiments and wrote a few orchestral cues, and they were they were good cues. They were good, solid mm combat cues but ken was just like no this is really the wrong direction so i huh. said well okay let me find let me try it with a small string ensemble and let's see what happens and i did uh, a session with a small the, the, the cool thing was and i've never recorded a score like this before is because we had the budget a significant budget i could do all these experiments with live instruments because there were just small string ensembles so sure the cost of doing all these small um, three, four players was minimal compared to the size and the budget had, that had been allocated. Oh, yeah. So I experimented, and, and the combat music sounded really cool with small string ensembles. So that, and, and it gave a very distinctive quality to the combat music as well. So that was how it evolved. 
Well, that's really wonderful. You mentioned sort of the uh, Americana sound of Bioshock Infinite, uh, and you've also talked about the influence of composers like Bernard Herrmann. One of the things I love so much about your music is, to me, it avoids a lot of the tropes and cliches that you tend to notice in modern you know, action film music or action video games. It really seems like your music is more tied to the history of classical composers. I particularly hear a lot of influence from 20th century symphonic composers who are the people that you would say um influenced you the most as a creative artist 20th century symphonic composers <laughs> you guessed it now seriously i do really love early and mid 20th century orchestral composers uh, bartok prokofiev stravinsky mm. uh, um, even schoenberg and berg um yeah uh, um shostakovich these, I, those composers' music just always really spoke to me. I, I mean, when I worked on the A team, I wasn't able to use those. <laughs> no <techniques>. way. <laughs> you know? um, but I, I was all of a sudden. Bioshock was pretty cool. It was like all of a sudden they're asking me to do stuff that I, I that I really loved. It was kind of yeah. it was kind of serendipity in that sense because it's like they had they really did kind of have the right composer from that standpoint. Because you know, I mean, it was it wasn't like. It, that that took a while to flesh out the original Bioshock too, because you know Emily was saying this has got to, this can't sound like any other film or game score, so that was one of her points. And then it had to be a really really unique and and awesome. So it was it was a challenge. And then I remember one day finding uh, that by combining different two or three different styles of 20th century music, like uh, music concrete, which uses the found sounds in the world, real mm-hmm. sounds of of breathing or, you know, sirens or whatever. And then combining that with aleatoric music, which is very dissonant, very chaotic sounding. And then with these sort of like melodies, uh, sort of Bergian, I'm getting pretty, pretty uh, geeky here. Go for so it. Oh, your audience it. is, uh, we love it. is uh, geeking with me here. Um, so by combining those three elements, something quite unique, none of the elements individually were unique, but to combine together, yeah, was, was really interesting. Well, I think particularly in a video game. I mean, I know yeah. there are composers like Christopher Young, for instance, who in film music use you know aleatoric techniques and you know things devices that come from the classical realm in film scoring. But honestly, uh, Bioshock is really one of the first and only examples still to this day that I can think of that really it, it sounds like you have the history of music at your disposal as far as uh, scoring this stuff. And I mean, I think. That's obviously one of the things that Emily Reese loves so much about you. Um, and I think that's, I mean, you're probably one of the reasons she wanted to even start the podcast of Top Score to show how, you know, video game music, it really is an art form and it can be tied into the lineage of classical music. Absolutely. All right. Well, you should, can you write that down and I'll put that on my uh, on my website. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Deal. Very, very complimentary. Um I just I do what I do and I and I I really am I consider myself lucky to have these opportunities. I, I this is sort of this sounds to me like a cliche because I say I've said it a lot and you know I teach the class in game scoring at USA and but I say it's really worth saying it's like the most interesting music I've ever been asked to write has been for video games. Yeah. So that's really I, I really have you know lucked out I, I don't know if you're familiar with like Dante's Inferno but I think that's yeah, right. interesting score as well and it's like how many people get to write such really intense really interesting music I mean a lot of film scores these days they're very creative but it, it a lot of them sound similar to me in style and what's interesting is they don't they don't seem to go to the emotional depths that we get in games. You know, we just get some of the most saddest of the sad moments and happiest of the happy rouse. Just, I don't know, it just kind of, it covers the, the gauntlet of every emotion, really. Yeah, I mean, look, there's certainly exceptions and there's some fantastic film scores out there. So, uh, you know, and there's John Williams, who is a phenomena and one of the great composers in the last hundred years. So, I'm, And next month we get a, a new score from him. Yes, we do. It's, it, I'm very much looking forward to hearing it as well. One other game that I really wanted to touch on, because I'm so curious, uh, and congratulations also, the BAFTA nomination on Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor, so congrats on that. Thank you, thank you. Um, Yeah, so that soundtrack is so wonderful, and I want to talk a little bit about that. How much thought was given, if any, to 
some of the musical tradition that had already been established to the world of Middle Earth, most notably, obviously, you know, Howard Shore's music for the Lord of the Rings movies. Was there any thought given to that, or is, was this just its own project? It really, they, they, there were other Lord of the Ring games, and they were going with the Howard Shore um, approach. Sure. I will be honest with you. I did not see a lot of the Lord of the Ring movies. I, mm-hmm. I saw one of them, and that was it. And I was not familiar with his score. I, and believe that or not, I don't <laughs> care. But I, really, I believe it. I really had not listened to a lot of it. But I was working with Nathan Griggs, who is the music right. director for uh, Monolith. And uh, we were like, yeah, we don't. They, they were like, this is a very different game. This is not like we're taking, you know, like one of the movies and turning it into a game. Exactly. Those have been just moderately successful from my understanding. Um, But they did something really cool and very unique with the game engine. And and it's I mean, I I talk to people and they go, oh, man, I wasted 80 hours on my life on that (laughs) or something like that. So that that is a very unique a friend of mine. Uh, Bear McGreary, do you know who Bear is? Oh, oh I love gosh. Bear McGreary. Yeah, he's well, we were having so good. We were having coffee, and he starts, and he just started going up. Oh, I love uh, Shadow of I've just, I've been, I've been like, <laughs> I go, how do you do that, man? You've got like nine televisions. That's crazy. Goes, well, I gotta relax. So he was, I mean, so I, I, I was really happy to hear that, uh, that people appreciated the game and, and the score, of course. Well, I'm so glad you brought him up because he, now that you mentioned it, he's another one of those composers that, you know, he really does his homework, whether it's in choosing instruments or orchestration, where it does feel tapped into the lineage of both film music, but also, you know, classical concert music. I think you, you two are really... He studied at USC, too. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a pattern here. <laughs> As did Tom Newman, by the way. I'm sure we could go on. There's just so, so many. Yeah, there's actually USC has generated a lot of really um, well-known film and TV composers. It, it it because in LA I think they have the best music composition department, and so a lot of those composers who were living in LA or wanted to live in LA and, and study here ended up naturally migrating to their school of music mm-hmm. if they wanted to study composition because there there isn't. There, there really isn't any better place to do that in L.A. Well, and you guys have some just incredible names as faculty members, people like Bruce Broughton, who to me are just like legendary. So, I mean, Bruce is legendary. I've been to his house and he's got this one wall where he's got like 13 Emmys on it. It's, oh my it's unbelievable. Gosh. They're like 13 Emmys lined up. He's one of those guys. I just want to hear more of his music. <laughs> you know, I just can't get yeah. enough. He's a he is a great composer and um and his wife is my concertmaster. His wife is Belinda Broughton, who's a wonderful violinist. Gosh, I, I'm loving all this name dropping. <laughs> <laughs> At least for us who are such nerds of this stuff. Yeah, Steven Spielberg is coming over in a couple hours. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. You know, one thing I'm curious about is you had that time before video games where you're working in film, doing some TV, had that forced foray, and then your, your second foray into games. And now, you know, you've done some films and, and stuff, uh, you know, recently as well. Is there anything that you've learned from your time scoring video games that you think you could apply uh, to film or TV? Uh, or like, how, how do you think you're going to approach future non-video game projects going forward? Well, I think every time you write a piece of music, you learn something and you game you get better at your craft um one thing that i've been forced to do is write more action and combat music than i've ever yeah in the last decade i just i've just written tons and tons and i hadn't been it, it hadn't been something i'd done a lot of in film so if um uh, an action movie came along i would be totally ready for it so yeah it'd be fun it'd probably be a more interesting score for an action movie than a lot of the kind of paint by numbers stuff yeah my my action chops are way way stronger than they were before i did video games that's great well is there anything that you're looking forward to you know to move it back this is a video game music podcast here uh before we let you go is there anything you're looking forward to uh as far as either technology or what you would like to see in video games i know it's such an exciting time because really the line between film music and video game music there really isn't much of a line anymore um as far as the the sound obviously implementationally there is what would you like to see going going forward in uh video game music well i'll just i'll 
I'm putting a plug for a game I scored this summer called IO Moon, which is a virtual reality game. Mm. And I think virtual reality, I, I mean, who, you know, everyone predicted that 3D television was going to be the next big thing and that kind of bomb. <laughs> but I kind of think virtual reality has a really interesting uh, future in it. And, and it could be like the total future for gaming. I, I don't know. I, my crystal ball, you know, is not that clear. And what was the name of that game you said? IO Moon. Io Moon is one of the moons of Jupiter. And so in the game, you fly down to Io from a space station hmm. and explore it. And it's pretty, it's really cool. Um, so that'll come out in next year. That is so exciting. Well, yeah, we're definitely going to stay tuned for that. Yeah, that, that should be really, really cool. I'm, I'm hoping that's, uh, that's successful. Um, I mean, you know, I, I really, I'm, I'm doing a game now. I can't talk about it. I can't tell you much about it. But it, it sounds it, great. It sounds great. Yeah, it's really great. <laughs> it's the best. Um, but it's it's um, I'm doing writing a lot of music for it, and it'll it won't come out until probably next year, maybe even 2017. It's it's. I mean, I'm going to be working on it till at least next September. Now, do you like that knowing that you're going to have all the constant work, or does it feel like almost like a burden that there's so much to be done? No, no. I'm really happy that. I mean, I know. You know that I'm going to be making a living for another year. That's a, that's not that's not that's a bad the best. thing to know. Yeah, you because know, I mean, you know, look when we're when we um, are finished with a project, if you don't have something lined up immediately, you're you're sort of unemployed. You know, for you sure. Are, not only are you sort of, you actually are unemployed. So it's always good to have something that's going to last and provide income and be really interesting. So yeah, I'm really happy. And and, and you know, it, it's it's leisurely enough if a little project comes by while this is going on, I, I probably could could take it as well. That is so great. Well, Gary, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Very insightful and really interesting to hear some of the stories of games like Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite and Destroy All Humans. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Well, thanks again to Gary Scheiman for uh, taking the time to speak with us. That was a really interesting interview and very sort of insightful mm -hmm. into his process and uh, sort of that whole world of video game scoring. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and it was fun to sort of hear the behind-the-scenes look at uh, these beloved video game soundtracks. And also, you know, like like he said, uh, we had a great time kind of nerding out. I, I really enjoyed kind of how deep he got into some of the, the musical inspiration. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that as well. Now we're going to move on. We're going to play um, a couple more tracks from Bioshock Infinite. And I'm excited to play this example. This is a track called The Songbird. And this is a great example of some of the different directions that Gary goes in in the soundtrack. And actually using a lot of those 20th century influences that he mentioned in the interview. Really wild stuff. Let's take a listen to the Songbird from Bioshock Infinite. You guys are listening to The Songbird from Bioshock Infinite, composed by Gary Scheiman. Wow. Uh, and we mentioned this in the interview, but just imagine the stark contrast between this and the licensed music you heard in the game. You know, most of it very uplifting and kind of jazzy and, you know, pop music. Of Definitely the, of an older era. Yeah, yeah, the early 20th century. So just imagine that contrast. Even the contrast between some of the more um, melodic... Lyrical, yeah. Yeah, pieces in the game. Will, what do you think about The Songbird? Well, I think this is just 
an incredibly effective uh, piece. One of my favorite things about it is, I mean, you have those strings playing in aleatory, which essentially means that they're given sort of a degree of improvisation or randomness as to their pitches and what they're allowed to do. In this case, they're kind of sliding up and down, and it gives you this really creepy, almost shrieking character, um, but it almost gives... Uh, each string sort of an individual personality to me I almost hear it as like shrieking voices but so you have that juxtaposed with this sort of constant beat and I think that's one of the most interesting things about this track is yeah I mean there's a lot of film music that um, is very aleatoric Mm -hmm. in nature but I I don't know I've never really heard a piece like this where it combines those more uh, random creepy uh, symphonic elements with this kind of dun 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 which I think of as almost like a it's like a modern film music trope I think of is the dun 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 that kind of heavy drum sound but even you know mm-hmm. nothing is sort of stock nothing is cliche that sound it's not being done on like timpani or bass drum or taiko drums it's like mixed with this uh, shaker kind of sound or something what I love Gary mentioned this is like every single track in this soundtrack features you know that kind of smaller ensemble sound so even the combat music a track like this it's still with a small number of instruments and that's what I think is actually more powerful I think this track is more creepy and more powerful than it would be if the, an entire orchestra was doing that you know what I'm saying yeah I hear what you're um, saying the fact that it's a little bit more more uh, kind of intimate is actually creepier. Yeah, I, I think it's because each instrument um, it takes up like more of the soundscape. You can hear the individual character of each individual timbre. Right. So you start to hear. Uh, in a sense, almost like all the individual shrieks or howls of these characters that we sort of imagine in our minds, where when you hear sort of the full orchestra, you get a little bit more of a blurred effect with like aleatoric music instead of being able to hear each individual kind of line. Really awesome. Well, now we're going to move on to one last track from Bioshock Infinite before we talk about um, some different series that he worked on. So this is a really cool track called AD. Let's take a listen. This is so beautiful. You guys are listening to AD from Bioshock Infinite, a very lively, expressive piece of music that's very active and it sounds very full. What's so impressive is to my ear, I'm only hearing about four voices here. It sounds to me like um, maybe just like a quartet of, of musicians on this track, but it's so full. Um, it's really interesting writing. Well, what do you think about this track? Even if we're talking about the context of other tracks we've heard from Bioshock Infinite, uh, this one really stands out to me. Well, I think this one stands out to me because uh, I, I think it's uh, virtual instruments on this one, but I think Gary almost uses that to his advantage because typically the strength of a virtual instrument library oftentimes um, are in the the shorter patches so having a lot of really short staccato notes and one of the things that almost becomes a motif of this piece is the juxtaposition of the shorter articulation in the strings and the really legato moments so you know it starts off with very very short and then then when the sort of melody line comes in so to speak um you have you know a couple a sequence of short notes with a sequence of legato notes and that sort of the juxtaposition between you know the smooth smooth slurred sequence of pitches and this really kind of short staccatissimo attack I think is really effective and almost gives it very striking it gives it a sort of uh, motivic character just based on the articulations well now we're going to move on finally to some other series that Gary worked on some of these he alluded to uh, he, he mentioned that uh, really his first big break was working on Destroy All Humans and he actually went on to score the sequel as well Destroy All Humans 2 uh, and we're going to play that 
main theme for you today because it's super fun. This is the Furon theme from Destroy All Humans 2, composed by Gary Scheiman. Enjoy, guys. Awesome. You guys are listening to Furon Theme from Destroy All Humans 2. It's nice to really kind of reset our palette here. This is composed by Gary Scheiman, and it's so great because the first game, and, you know, I think the second game as well, uh, is kind of a send-up to the 50s as far as some of the sci-fi tropes and, and just in general culture. Uh, I know that it parodies, you know, a lot of aspects of the 50s from pop culture to politics uh, and what have you. So he just does an awesome job of nailing that. Like, it almost feels like this is from some kind of B-movie in the 50s. Right. I, th- I mean, I think a huge part of that has to do with that kind of sine wavy theremin, theremin instrument yeah. that <laughs> it just sounds like an old alien invader movie, which is just so wonderful in uh, campy. I love that. I mean, also, I think the harmonic language that Gary evokes in this particular piece feels very much of that era. I mean, you have that Mm -hmm. um, wonderful chord moment where it goes to minor one chord and moves to a minor chord that's just a major third down. Sure. If you're not sure of what I mean, I essentially mean that's like the chord progression to the Imperial March. Yada-da, yada-da, yada-da. It's very Um, dark and scary. If you think of Darth Vader's theme. Uh, but it's it's something that you know Bernard Herman would use a lot of those uh, you know additional minor chords where you wouldn't expect them and a lot of you know added tones and stuff. So I, I think him being one of the influences. And also I think it's so fun hearing the orchestration so wildly different from the stuff he did in Bioshock. You know, yeah, for me, so cool. you, know, you know, things like the xylophone, things that obviously mm-hmm. would have no place uh, in a series like Bioshock, but it's so fun to hear him uh, being able to use stuff like that here. So that's really cool. Well, now we're going to move on to uh, last track of the day. This is from a recent game, Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor, a really popular game. And he did a wonderful job scoring this game. He had help also from Nathan Grigg, uh, but this is a track that Gary composed. This is called Stealth is my only advantage. Let's take a listen to this track from Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor. Listening to Stealth is My Only Advantage from Middle Earth Shadow of Morador. I think this is a really effective piece of orchestral music, and again, you just hear his wonderful chops, and you can tell he's uh, such a lover of not only uh, classic film music, um, but also, again, uh, that 20th century classical music. For sure. Um, Again, you hear a little bit of the kind of sound of aleatoric strings in this, but also, uh, I think one of my favorite things about this... um, 
is it, it actually reminds me a little bit of uh, Star Wars. Sure. Uh, the you know in A New Hope when uh, I think it's in the opening scene there's that shot of the full group of stormtroopers running through Leia's ship and there's that dun 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 with the strings and brass just doing these repeated notes with these accents on you know off beats and stuff that that's kind of like what we're getting here you know it's a very dissonant clustered kind of chord and it's just being repeated again and again with eighths or it may be quarter notes but the accents are on beats that you don't expect it. So you have yuntun instead of just having yuntun dunton It's it's very kind of shocking and surprising, and it makes the music interesting. And you know you can just kind of it's it's a technique that's used a lot in film music because you're able to sort of keep the same emotional tone. You can just repeat the same chord over and over again, but by having accents on beats that you don't expect it. I don't know. It, it sort of extends the length of that musical material, and it just allows for more possibilities as far as uh, creating or supporting the tone of um, that particular moment. I think you're so right about that. It is worth mentioning that this soundtrack was nominated for a BAFTA award, so I think that's just really impressive, and I think you can definitely hear the authenticity in this music. Well, guys, we had such a great time exploring the career of Gary Scheinman. Obviously, talking with him was such a treat, so thanks one more time, Gary, for coming on our show. We appreciate it. Yeah, we like to do uh, at least one interview every season, so you guys can hopefully look forward to another one of these next season. Uh, If someone's new to this show, we just want to give a couple shout-outs here. You can find us on iTunes. You can subscribe to us there. You can also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our website is supermarcadobros.com, where you can find every episode of this podcast, as well as all of our original music there. And we do have a Patreon as well, if you are like what you're hearing and want to support us. So we're going to play you guys out with a track from Dante's Inferno, a really epic track called Donas Dogama Mikma. It's so beautiful. Great way to end this episode. Once again, composed by Gary Scheiman. We had a great time. Hope you guys will stick with us, and we'll talk to you next week. My name is Carl. Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everybody. Peace out.